In John chapter 9, verse 1, these are the words of God. As he passed by, he being Jesus, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? Jesus answered, It was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me as long as it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. When he had said this, he spat on the ground and made clay of the spittle and applied the clay to his eyes and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. So he went away and washed and came back seeing. Therefore the neighbors and those who previously saw him as a beggar were saying, Is not this the one who used to sit and beg? Others were saying, This is he. Still others were saying, No, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the one. So they were saying to him, How then were your eyes opened? He answered, The man who is called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went away and washed, and I received sight. They said to him, Where is he? He said, I do not know. They brought to the Pharisees the man who was formerly blind. Now it was a Sabbath on the day when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. Then the Pharisees also were asking him how he received his sight. And he said to them, He applied clay to my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Therefore, some of the Pharisees were saying, This man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. But others were saying, How can a man who is a sinner perform such signs? And there was a division among them. Note that. (laughs) So they said to the blind man again, What do you say about him since he opened your eyes? And he said, He is a prophet. The Jews then did not believe it of him, that he had been blind and had received sight, until they called the parents of the very one who had received his sight, and questioned them, saying, Is this your son, who you say was born blind? Then how does he now see? His parents answered them and said, We know that this is our son, and that he was born blind, but how he now sees, we do not know, or who opened his eyes, we do not know. Ask him, he is of age, he will speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone confessed him to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. For this reason, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. So a second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He's then answered, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. So they said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I told you already and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? You do not want to become his disciples too, do you? They reviled him and said, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he is from. The man answered and said to them, well, here is an amazing thing that you do not know where he is from. And yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is God-fearing and does his will, he hears him. Since the beginning of time, it has never been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, you were born entirely in sins, and are you teaching us? (laughs) Heard that before, right? So they put him out 
They sent him away. Jesus heard that they had put him out, and finding him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, Who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have both seen him, and he is the one who is talking with you. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. And Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, so that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Those of the Pharisees who were with him heard these things and said to him, We are not blind too, are we? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no sin. But since you say, We see, your sin remains. Let's pray. Our Father and gracious God, we thank you that Christ is the light, and in him we can truly see. We can truly see who you are, and we can rightly see who we are because of it. Help us, Holy Spirit, to learn and apply, to search and to grow. In Christ's name I pray, and for his glory, amen. So, I just want to, um, we're going to just jump in, summarize the passage, pull out some stuff. We'll have plenty of time for discussion, so um, be thinking about that ahead of time. But I, I want to make sure that you, we've read the whole passage. I did that on purpose because everything really goes together. So you need to see the players involved. You need to see the plot. You need to see the key inter- uh, interchanges between them in terms of what is actually said. And then we can sort of grapple with the text and know what we should do with it. So the first section, very simple. Jesus does the miracle, right? Notice the text at the very beginning. Jesus saw, in verse 1, Jesus saw a blind man. There's irony there. He saw a blind man. And the disciples who are with Jesus are concerned. Here we have a blind man. What happened to this guy? Why is he in the condition he is in? Um, Did he sin or did his parents sin? That's the only explanation that they can come up with, which incidentally is the pagan view of a closed universe, that everything's just natural and we're working with material, that's it. So that's, that's their thinking. That's not biblical thinking at all. So the question of cause and effect is basically brought up. Jesus responds that neither of these answers suffices. All of this is done so that the works of God can be displayed in him so that the works can be done for God's glory. And Jesus says labor is done in the daytime because then people can see what, they can, what they're doing. No one works in the dark. That's basic understanding, pre-electricity. <laughs> in other words, Christ is the light. He makes the claim. Christ the light is here. He is doing the works of his Father, and he is a man whom Jesus will now set free. So, as light of the world... Jesus, he spits on the ground. Kind of gross, but he spits on the ground. He, puts, he makes clay together, fashions it. Probably took quite a bit of saliva, I imagine. Just Jesus was a human. <laughs> he is human. He puts the clay then on the man's eyes. He tells the man to go. Go to the pool of Siloam. Go wash. The word, the, the Siloam means scent which is interesting. Jesus is the sent one of God. He's the bringer of the new creation. He's going to remake man out of the dust of the earth. That's how we should interpret that. So the man, he does what he's told, and the text says that he comes back seeing. He can see. He was born blind. The man can now see. The neighbors, as you can imagine, are now talking. The tweet went out. The world is talking about it. So is this the same man? That's the question. Is this the same guy who who we're talking about? The verdict, though, is is out. They want to know, how did this happen? How is this blind man now being able to see? And in verse 12, they ask the question, where is he? 
Where is he? Which is, again, is the same question over and over and over again. This Jesus is elusive and they're trying to pin him down. Where is he? The rest of the chapter is basically the unfolding of the drama and it's connected to the key players of, of the healing. So if you look at your Bible, there's just five section, sections and you can see how it's divided up and I'll just let you know what they are. In verses 13 to 17, we have the man, the blind man and the Pharisees. Well, the formerly blind man, I should say, and the Pharisees. And then, the, and then in verses 18 to 23, it's the Jews, the leaders, who goes to the man's parents. And then in 24 to 34, it's the man and the Pharisees again. And then in 35 to 38, it's Jesus and the man again. He has an encounter again. Jesus goes and he finds him. And then finally at the end, we have Jesus and the Pharisees back at it again, tussling over this whole ordeal. So look at verse 14. We're told that it's the Sabbath day. Pay attention to that. This is not the first time we've encountered this issue. Um, in the Gospels, when you actually study the Gospels together, all four, um, Jesus does seven miracles on the Sabbath. There's a total of seven miracles on the Sabbath. And again, you know, seven not, is, isn't just the perfect number, but seven is the exact number of days it takes to get to a new creation. I think there's a reason for that. So the same exact situation takes place with, took place with a man before who couldn't walk. Jesus healed on the Sabbath. Any healing requires work. And guess what you're not supposed to do? You're not supposed to work on the Sabbath. You're not supposed to do that sort of thing. That's a problem. In the minds of the Pharisees, Jesus, and, and I agree with them. Let's qualify that. Because the Pharisees weren't the greatest people. Their thinking is that, look, the man was born blind. He has waited his whole life. You could have simply waited another day and you could have healed him. It's logical, right? Why, why do the work on the Sabbath? The man's been blind who knows how long. Maybe he's in his 20s. We don't know. And you could have just waited till tomorrow. Why? I mean, they're right, sort of, right? <laughs> Again, Jesus, though, the point is, is Jesus is giving Sabbath back to man because Sabbath was made for man. Listen, to um, riff off an old, uh, I, I think it was Kennedy, President Kennedy who said this. You can correct me. I, I don't remember. Or maybe it was Reagan. But ask not what you can do or can't do on the Sabbath, but what the Sabbath can do for you. That's the question we should ask. Don't ask the question, what can we do or not do on the Sabbath? But ask the question, what can the Sabbath do for you? That's the issue at stake. So we, we learn yet again that Jesus is a lawbreaker. Jesus is a lawbreaker. He's a man's lawbreaker. That's what he does. He's breaking man's law, not God's law. So the whole exchange between the Pharisees and the man, his parents, and Jesus, when you read this, you should have felt like this was a pitiful ordeal. The whole conversation was absolutely pitiful. Their time with Jesus and the man is basically spent trying to discredit both of them. So if you ever want to discredit someone, um, I'm sure all of you have been on the, the receiving end of that, but it's a two-step process. It's very simple. It's as old as the Pharisees and even goes into the Old Testament. Step one, you question the miracle and then you criticize it ad nauseum. And then step two, if that doesn't work, you question the miracle worker and then you criticize him ad nauseum. So 
it's this whole, if you can't win the argument, just call them a name. <laughs> That's what you do. That's how you win, right? That's sort of how it happens on the college campuses when <laughs> you talk to college students. You can't win the argument, you call them a poo-poo head, and then you take your ball and go home. You thought that was funny, Ryland. So, to be sure, the blind man didn't know what was going on in verse 12. He didn't, he didn't entirely know what was going on. The man could finally see after a life of blindness, and Jesus now was nowhere to be found. They don't know where he went. So his sight was restored, which means that's a, an indication of something. It's an indication that his life was now restored in Christ. But could he make sense of it yet? I'm just going to go out on a limb and say, there are a lot of people who are probably regenerate and don't understand it yet. I think that happens clearly in the case of John the Baptist in the womb, who the Spirit was moving in him. Clearly a regenerate man with a new heart in the womb, but he couldn't say words yet. <laughs> he wasn't even out of the womb. So the man can see he's restored in Christ, but does he understand it all yet? No, he clearly doesn't. So the leaders come along, and they're cleaning up the perceived mess. That's their task. And in order to do so, they have to discredit the whole process, front to back, top to bottom. So they start here in verse 16 by saying that Jesus couldn't have done the miracle. There's no way that this miracle could have happened and been accomplished by Jesus because only men from God do miracles. All right? So, and he broke the Sabbath day, so... Clearly, he's not from God. You, you see the train of thought in their mind. The man testifies that Jesus is a prophet, and they go, then they go to the parents, and yet the parents are scared because they don't want to be put out of the synagogue. There's a lot of fear in the passage. They're scared, and so they send him back to the young man. You know, he's old enough to defend himself. Go talk to him. Don't bother us, essentially. So the leaders then, they use their power and their authority We'll come back to that concept in a minute. To push the man into a corner. Verse 24. Here's what they say to him. Give glory to God. We know that this man, Jesus, is a sinner. Quite a claim. In other words, come on, just, just praise God for your sight. Praise, give glory to God. Don't drag this Jesus, the demon-possessed man, into the picture. Now, the man's testimony is, is sure. He says, sinner or not, sinner or not, I was blind, now I see. That's the text Newton pulled from the song Amazing Grace that we sang. I, whatever's this issue with Jesus, I don't know, but I was blind, that I know, and now I see. And Jesus, I know, had a key role in the process because I didn't see him physically, but I know he put mud on my eyes, and I did what he said, and now I can see. So they obsess about the issue. They press him further, and the man retorts back in verse 27. He said, what's your problem, you Pharisees? What's your deal here? I already told you. What, do you want to become a disciple of his? That's an undercut of their authority and their power. You guys keep asking me, what, do you like this guy? Are you obsessed with him? You want to be his disciple? They criticize him now and saying that he is a disciple of Jesus and they're disciples of Moses, which isn't actually true anyway. And again, they say in verse 29, we know. That phrase, we know, keeps popping up. We know. They think they know things, all right. And then again in verse 31, we know the same thing. And then the man basically schools the religious leaders by talking back. 
Talk back to an elder and see what happens. <laughs> Verse 30. If he's humble, he'll listen. If he's not, he'll just assert his authority and then off we go to the races. But look at verse 30 and 30 through 34. The man answered and said to them, well, here is an amazing thing that you do not know where he is from and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is God-fearing and does his will, he hears him. They're giving, he's giving the, the religious leaders a Bible study, a Bible lesson. Since the beginning of time, it has never been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And they answer him, you were born entirely in sins and you are teaching us? <laughs> this is a classic case of someone's authority and power being brought into question and they dismiss the person. It's easy to dismiss. It's easy to dismiss the abolitionists out there, you know, the, the crazy person. Right, Matt? Just, you know, that's a crazy person. They, dis they discredit you, they dismiss you, they slander you, they will say whatever they can to undermine you without dealing with the argument. It's a classic move. It's classic. He schools them with a Bible study and they say, look, man, you were born entirely in your sins and you're going to teach us? Ha! You can't do that. We're too big for that. So Jesus, he goes and he finds the man, the blind man, the formerly blind man, I should say, since they pushed him out, they pushed him out of their presence, and he asks him if he believes the Son of Man. Jesus goes back to enlighten this man who can now see. Do you believe in the Son of Man? And the man questions who he is, he's not sure, and Jesus affirms that it's him. The one who's talking to you is he. And what happens? The text says the man believes. The man believed, and not just believed, he worshipped him. There's a couple words in Greek. One of them is proskuneo. It means simply to bow down. The man worshipped him. He, he didn't, you know, just sing a song. He literally bowed down before Jesus. That's a converted man. <laughs> That's a converted man. And Jesus says in verse 39, he says, For judgment I came into this world. For judgment I came into this world. Listen to 1 John 1, 4 and 5. It says, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Now, at this point, Jesus has already claimed several times over that he is light of the world, and the religious leaders are now challenging him. Now, however, Jesus, though, isn't just saying it. Jesus is going to demonstrate what exactly this claim means. What is he claiming when he says that I am the light of the world? He will restore the blind man's sight. That's, there's no reason to see that as disconnected. What does it mean for Jesus to be light of the world? Let me tell you, I will restore life in men. Remember, the light of, from the prologue, John basically says as much. In him was the light, and the light was the life of men. He's giving life to a man who can't see. It's the most tangible expression of God's grace. What does it mean to be light of the world? It means blind men see. Blind men see. So the restoration of the sight, you should know, is characteristic of the Messianic age. When we think about Jesus Christ as King of kings and Lord of lords, um, the post-millennial hope, if you will, the, the, what is characteristic of the Messianic age, blind men can see. You can look at, and if you want to look these up later, you can write them down, but Isaiah 29, 18. You can look at Isaiah 29, 18, and you can look at Isaiah 35, 5. 29, 18 and 35, 5. The Messiah's coming would be as such that the lame would now walk, 
We've already seen that. The captives would, be, would have liberty, and the blind would, would see. The problem is, however, when it, comes to, when it comes time to do the messianic stuff, it's hard for the religious leaders to believe. It's hard for some of the people who are watching to believe. And a lot of it has to do with the issue of fear. Fear is all over the passage. Fear, we, sh- we know, is a great motivator, but it's also a great blinder. Um, the same writer of this gospel said in one of the letters that perfect love casts out what? Fear. See, when something doesn't fit our pre- preconceived notions, something doesn't fit our presuppositions, it scares us. It scares us. And that's why the leaders were scrambling to discredit the man and the parents and Jesus. So much of today's culture and discourse is, is built on fear-mongering. And what we learn here is the fact that the most hostile threat, listen, the most hostile threat comes from within, not without. Not outside of Israel, right? The leaders, they were not scared of Rome. They were quite ready to rebel against Rome, and they did, and then there was a bloodbath in AD 70. We know that. They weren't scared of Rome, but who were they most terrified of? This young prophet who keeps saying stuff and doing stuff. They were terrified of Jesus. And the same stuff happens today. People are panicked at immigrants coming to America when they really should be panicked that statism is destroying us. It's mind-blowing. If you remember just a few months ago, the caravan was coming to destroy America. I'm still waiting. You know what's destroying America? The public school system. (laughs) Do you know what's destroying America? Property tax. Like, it's not the threat without, it's the threat within. That's the issue. And not only is this type of thing selective outrage, it's selective fear. But make no mistake, their, their greatest threat isn't out there. It's in here. And the leaders know it. The religious leaders knew it. They absolutely knew it. And part of the reason that they were so flabbergasted by Jesus is the fact that he treated his kingdom preaching, his kingdom announcing, his kingdom action as the very threat that it is. We talked about this last week. The identity of Jesus, of course, for him is not confusing, but it's confusing for people. It's confusing for the leaders. Is this man a sinner? They called him a sinner. You don't call Jesus a sinner. (laughs) Is he the son of man? Is he a prophet? Who is this man? No, he's not a sinner. Yes, he's a prophet. Most definitely, yes, he's the son of man. He is the light of the world. And at the heart of this passage is the exclusive claims of Jesus. See, the exclusive claim of Jesus is this. No one can see anything unless he starts with Christ the light. That's what he's saying. No one can see anything unless you start with Christ the light. And think about it for a second. Darkness itself, um, I remember when I was a kid, we did a, a, a sweet capture the flag thing in the dark at a campground. And let me tell you, it was so dark that night that you could be only two feet from someone and not see them there. And I'll never forget that. It was my co- we were there with my cousin, and, and 
we played this amazing, and it was like covering a long field, and you literally have to go, obviously, and get the other team's flag, and you're literally walking along, and you don't want to run into a tree, or, and you literally have to feel your way around, but you could kind of, if somebody was breathing, you could hear them. And it was like the, I swear, I mean, I was a kid. Maybe it wasn't as dark as I thought it was, but it was really, really dark. Now, you don't, when we think spiritually, though, darkness, it only makes sense when light shines. In other words, darkness, it's inherently discombobulated. It's a worldview. Think of it in terms of worldview. Darkness is incoherent. It doesn't, it's, it's nothing. You don't fully understand it when you're in it. It's inherently disjointed. It's inherently out of sorts, that sort of thing. But you don't know that it's that if that's all you know. The blind man was blind his whole life. He has no concept. How do you describe the color blue to a blind person? Blue, it's, it's like the ocean. Okay, that's unhelpful. You, how do you do that? It's, you, you don't. You can't understand it. This man, he couldn't see his entire life. But in the text, all of this fear and confusion surrounding the darkness and light and Jesus being light of the world stems from the fact of what were called false premises. The false premise. Right from the very start, there was confusion. The very first couple of verses, there was confusion. The disciples, they saw the man born blind, and it was obvious someone sinned. Someone sinned, the man's blind. But this was the wrong premise. And what is the premise? Well, it's this issue of cause and effect. Causality, we'll call it. They believed that the man's blindness was a result of sin. It was either his sin or his parents' sin. But this isn't, this sort of like quid pro quo, this for that, isn't how the world operates. That's a pagan system. It's not karma, okay? We exist for God's purposes. And when we try to rid ourselves of God, what happens? Well, we think ourselves to exist for our sake, when we, you know, the Nietzsche declaring God dead. Well, if God's dead, then what? Dostoevsky, he said, you know, if God, God's dead, like, anything's possible. Anything, we can do whatever we want. The, the, the door is flung open, we can do whatever we want. Which means for us, we're going to have to decide if this is how we're going to live or not. Are we going to start with a triune God, or are we going to start with man? See, truth, truth cannot be established on or grounded on whimsical, faulty assumptions. The leaders in the text, they started with the premise that Jesus is a sinner, which led them to the conclusion that he couldn't have performed the miracle. So they poisoned the well. It was fallacious reasoning. But Christ won't allow this sort of thing to go on. Christ the King is not interested in letting us think ourselves to be quite sufficient enough to handle knowledge all by ourselves. Christ is the great foundation of knowledge. Everything begins with him as light of the world. So parents, you who have children, you must teach this to your, ch your child. Your kids must know. Christ is the foundation of knowledge. He's the foundation. Everything rests on him. All you kids, hey, look up here for a second. You need to know that Jesus Christ is the foundation of knowledge. All right? He is the starting point for everything. That's why you're getting Christian education and not pagan education. Everything you learn about the world, I know some of you like to explore outside. You like seeing birds and animals and things. It's really fun, isn't it? All that's there because of Jesus Christ. All of it's there. It's his created world, and we get to just go out and enjoy it, don't we? 
So the blind man, though, is all men in the story. The blind man is all men, okay? The whole spit and the dirt and the mud thing is a, rehear a rehearsal of the old created order. Remember when God made Adam, he fashioned him out of the dust of the ground. He fashioned him out of the dirt. And Jesus is rehearsing the whole thing again. Why? Because Jesus is making a new humanity. He's making a new humanity. The blind man is all men. It's all of us. Apart from Christ, we are all blind. We can't see. All men and women and children, apart from Christ, are fallen and blind, and we do not properly assess our abhorrent condition. We don't know. We don't know that we're blind because we don't know what light is. We don't know what the colors are. We don't know the world. And that's why men need to have new eyes so that they can truly see. And that's what Jesus intends to do with the world through us, through gospel preaching. And, and here's the thing. We don't need the numbers. <laughs> numbers don't, they don't really matter all to me. This blind man was treated as a nobody. It's clear that they wanted to do everything they could to squash this man. Discredit him, discredit his parents, discredit Jesus who helped him see, the whole thing. They treated him as a nobody. But one nobody is no big deal. But what about 5,000 nobodies? That's a threat now. They're trying to contain this. And I think the leaders, they were concerned that this whole new humanity thing was about to get out of control. And I think that's why we need to take a moment to talk about power and authority. Power and authority coupled with pride and inflated ego is a recipe for disaster. Some of you have been in churches like that. Or the leaders are power-hungry, ego-laden people. They're just, that's what they do. And a lot of times, elders and pastors, they believe themselves to be like the Pharisees, the gatekeepers of all, all truth, all the final place where everything stops. The buck stops there. But the only proper way to, for us to wield power and authority is in Christ. That's it. It's the only place you can find it. Wielding power and authority apart from a humble submission to Christ and his word is like giving a toddler a machete. Okay? Someone's going to get hurt, and it's probably going to be the child who's first. Power and authority are only legitimate when it's done in God's terms, not man's terms. And that's the central issue of our text. There's an issue of conformity. Will they conform their lives to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? Or will they conform their lives to man and man's institutions? It's clear where the religious leaders stood. They believe, without a doubt, in man and his institutions, usurping God's authority. But the blind man didn't follow them. His testimony repudiated and undermined the whole, their whole worldview. And that's what the gospel does. See, this issue of conformity. Conformity to Christ, to conformity to God's law word, can only be done by faith. Here's the other thing. Here's the flip side, all right? Conformity to the laws of men can only be done by coercion. That's the difference. The blind man, the parents, the leaders, all these players in this story, who's going to conform to whom? That's the question. And conformity to Christ and his law is only done by faith. Conformity to man's law is done by coercion. That's how it works. But it's not a matter if conformity is going to happen, but which conformity will we prefer? You see, what, what Jesus does at the end is astounding. Look at verses 39 to 41, and then we'll wrap up. 
shortly thereafter. 39. And Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, so that those who do not see may see, and that those who may see may become blind. Those of the Pharisees who were with him heard these things and said to him, We are not blind too, are we? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no sin. But since you say we see, your sin remains. This is enigmatic, no doubt. It's puzzling. But it's an important concept to nail down, and I'll tell you why. Jesus is clear that he has come, and that as light of the world, and as light of the world, walking around in this darkness, judgment is going to happen. And there's going to be a great separation. A great separation. This, is, this great judgment of Christ coming to earth, taking on flesh, is a line in the sand. That's what it is. And either men will worship Christ or they will rebel against him. But Jesus takes no prisoners here. Jesus takes no prisoners here. The blind man was confronted by Jesus, given the offer to conformity to Christ, and he ends up worshiping Jesus. The leaders, however, they do not do so. They do the opposite. And the judgment of the light of the world is here. And part of that judgment is the fact that those who do not see will see, and those who see may become blind. If you've ever proclaimed the gospel to someone and they got mad at you, the gospel did its job. Look what Jesus says. This is astounding. He comes into the world, verse 39, so that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may become blind. That's not very nice. Why would he say that? Well, here's the reality. We often don't talk about being... We often talk about being blind, and then now we see. But what we sometimes forget is that we don't realize that part of gospel preaching and gospel proclamation is the blinding of those who think they can see. See, the leaders ask, are we blind? And what is his response? He says, if you were blind, you would have no sin. What does he mean by that? Well, in other words, it's this. If you knew that you were blind your sin would be forgiven and discharged completely because the only way that you know you're blind is when your sins are forgiven. So they, in other words, they would actually have to see to know that they were blind. The blind man never experienced sight. He has no idea what it is. Those who think they experience sight don't know what blindness really is. That's the issue. But, but they see, you know, we see, we see over and over, which proves that their sin remains. They're truly blind. And here's the thing. The blind men can now see. The Pharisees who can see are blind. That's the play on the words. The blind man sees. The Pharisees claim to see, but they can't actually see. So it's not that blindness itself is an indication of sin. Don't forget that's what the disciples' mistake was. Rather, since it's what comes out of a man that defiles him and not what goes in, the claim to be able to see when you can't see is sin. Did you catch that? The claim to be able to see when you can't see is the sin. See, seeing is believing because seeing only happens through faith. That's it. 
You, you can't actually see Jesus until you believe in Jesus, and you can't exercise this faith in Jesus until you possess the faith, and you can't even possess the faith until you repent of your blindness, and you can't even do that until Christ opens your eyes. That's why I mentioned the Reformed Theology book earlier. It's all in God's sovereignty. The repentance you need, the faith you need, the sight you need only comes by God's grace, period. So from start to finish, it's all God's grace. And every time man attempts to make sense of the world, he, he makes a claim to see. He thinks he can see. But this seeing is threatened when Jesus comes because Jesus overturns the wisdom of the world. Jesus overturns the systems of man, which are pitiful attempts at extrapolating some sort of meaning of the world from the world. You can't define the world when you're blind by using terms of the world. You have to have something else. Blind men stumbling in darkness, they may know some things, but they don't know why. They can only guess. And that's why I think in verse 39 here, Jesus uses the judgment language and why it's so important. Following the light of the world into the world will inherently mean that we too are expected to illuminate the way. Jesus said that you are the light of the world and the you there is plural. The church is the light of the world. See, we're not sent into the world to merely explain the world. We're sent into the world to change it. If we're going to be faithful to the preaching of the gospel, we're going to have to get used to the fact that preaching truth, preaching truth is accompanied by, with the ex exposing of error. If we're going to preach the truth, we need to know that that very act itself will be exposing error. And that's a feature of the whole thing, not a bug. And that's why the be nice Christian thing doesn't actually work. If we're going to be faithful to Christ, faithful to what he demands of, us, demands of us, faithful to the proclamation of the gospel of the kingdom, then you better believe that that proclamation is a sword. The sword is not dull, and it cuts to the heart of all idolatry. And we need to treat the message like that. It's a threat to the kingdoms of men. It's a threat because it's, it's a light. It exposes the darkness and it has the power to draw men into the kingdom. After all, you were blind, but now you see. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are thankful. We are a thankful people because by your grace and by the power of your spirit, you have given us sight. We also know that we dare not think that the point of this sight is wrapped up in the gift itself. You have given us sight so that we can shine a light into the darkness to help others see the light. So we ask for opportunity, boldness, and humility. We ask that you provide us opportunity to be bold and humbly summon men and women and children into your great kingdom. And we ask this in Christ's holy name. Amen.